I'd like to introduce uh, a dear friend to you. Uh, Nathan has been here before, and um, I have developed a, quite a relationship. It's, it's not often that a fundamentalist Baptist preacher will hang around somebody that went through the charismatic movement. But uh, for some reason, uh, God has melted his heart, and uh, we have become uh, fast friends. Uh, Nathan uh, is the head of uh, Family Policy Alliance of, of Wyoming, and they are really, I mean, on the front lines of, uh, of education, uh, family, and religious freedoms. Uh, the things that we are able to, to do, they work, uh, he works hand-in-hand with the Wyoming Pastors Network, of which uh, this church is a part of. And um, we just, um, there's a lot of prayer, and then there's a lot of prayer, and there's a little bit of work. So we try to do all of those things. Uh, Nathan uh, has been uh, just a, a gift to us as a church. And, as you, and I want you to know uh, that uh, this church supports Family Policy Alliance as a missions entity. So uh, he's going to stand before you not just as someone who's sharing things. He's standing before you because you are, uh, by, your, by the grace and the gifts that you give uh, through tithes and everything like that, we're able to provide um, uh, you know, finances and things for uh, organizations like this. Um, and so we'd just like to um, uh, have Nathan come and um, you're, just have fun today. All right, brother. God bless you. All right. Love you. Oh, what a joy your church is. I'm just a brother from a different location. And so today to have the opportunity to stand before you as one of your missionaries, but also as a brother in Christ, is a joy. And uh, your pastor, Pastor Marty and, and uh, Ms. Carrie, are just tremendous friends and have been for a long time. I first met him when I was in the legislature. And we had founded a group called the Wyoming Pastors Network. And I met uh, Marty in Casper, I believe it was, at the Ramcota Inn. And uh, it is amazing, knowing the background that I come from and where Marty comes from, what God has done is knit us truly together as brothers. And so in an even new uh, way, uh, Pastor Marty is coming alongside us uh, in helping us with the work uh, at Family Policy Alliance. And actually, we've had the opportunity to grow to the point where we get to move out of just the smaller franchise model into a full partnership. Many years ago, a man that you may have heard of by the name of James Dobson founded fam, uh, Focus on the Family Action. It later became known as Citizen Link and is now known as Family Policy Alliance. And so it has been a joy, actually, over the last few years to travel around the country uh, because of uh, my passion for history and, and uh, some time in the legislature and also uh, spending time in God's Word. It's given an opportunity for us to talk about some very important things. But let me just say, that can't happen without you. And so I can't express my appreciation enough. There's not enough words that I know in the English language to relay that to you. But I hope that you can see my heart. And I appreciate you very much. Not only that, I've had the opportunity to see how much this church cares for the city of Gillette. And through the heart of Pastor Marty, I've been able to see how you care for the state of Wyoming. And so that's why it's such a joy to be with you this morning. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter number uh, 4, 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. We're going to get there in just a moment, but today I want to talk to you about a citizen's role in his country, a Christian's role as a citizen in his country. 
Before we do that, I want to actually let's read this passage together. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I'll read it for us and then we'll bow in prayer. It reads this way Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I am so grateful for how explicit Paul is in this text to teach us how we can live in the world around us, but exactly what we ought to reflect. And Father, today as we explore this passage, as we talk about our role, especially as it will be exercised later this week, I pray that you would give us wisdom to see your word, to see it clearly. Lord, I pray that you would remove any inhibition that would hold us back from a full exploration of your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's a joy for me to talk about this with you, but I have to start on a down note. 1943 was the deadliest year in human history. The largest confrontation in World War II reached its highest point as the Soviet high command ordered troops to destroy the remnants of the German 6th Army. This was uh, the final battle in the siege of Stalingrad. The siege of Stalingrad is always listed as one of the top three deadliest battles in human history. And after taking Stalingrad, the Battle of Kursk, the largest armored battle in history, possibly also, by some assessments, uh, the, the numbers are difficult to really get down to, but it was probably also the largest air battle in human history as well. And in just the space of a few weeks, 257,000 casualties happened in that one battle. In the Warsaw ghettos of Poland, thousands of Jewish civilians were fighting for their lives in bloody street battles. They were resisting deportation to a concentration camp known as Treblinka, which was one of the deadliest of the concentration camps. By June of that year, 1.3 million Jews had been deported and killed from Poland alone. This was also the height of the Japanese invasion of Asia, where around 10 million would eventually die. The Americans and British were fully engaged in the South Pacific, in North Africa, and also in Sicily. And in a little-known fact of that war, 3 million died of starvation and famine in the region of Bengal, near British India. But it was in that year, 1943, with conflict spanning the globe, a British professor from Oxford's Magdalen College 
was asked to deliver a series of guest lectures at the Durham University there in England. His name was Clive Stapleton Lewis. You probably know him as C.S. Lewis. Professor Lewis knew full well the nature and horrors of war. Lewis had been in the trenches in World War I. In fact, he had lost his dearest friend there. And by the time the war was over, World War I, Lewis was, as he would later claim, a very avowed atheist. He couldn't stand even the idea of a God that would allow such a thing to happen. He went back home to England and he took, uh, he moved into the home of his best friend's mother and took care of her until her death many years later. It was during this time that C.S. Lewis began to teach in Oxford and he met someone who became a very dear friend, a man by the name of J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien was a very famous man in his day. You may have actually heard his name because he wrote a very famous series of books called the Lord of the Rings Trilogy. J.R.R. Tolkien led C.S. Lewis to Christ. And C.S. Lewis began to devote his life to serving Christ with everything he had. So in 1943, when he visited Durham, England, and spoke at the University of Durham, he knew full well the horror of war. And yet he chose in this deadliest of years to talk about a very different cultural threat that he believed could destroy humanity truly and fully. And he saw it emerging in his day. This series of lectures eventually was developed into a wonderful book, a book known as The Abolition of Man. In the very first line of this book, he writes this, I doubt whether we are sufficiently attentive to the importance of elementary school textbooks. Now note this, the grave danger he could witness all around him, and yet the subject he brings up begins with the subject of school. Lewis explains his case by carefully dissecting a school textbook from his day. He refused to say what the, school, the title was, but we now know it to be a book entitled The Control of Language, A Critical Approach. Now notice the phrasing, a critical approach to reading and writing. What bothered Lewis so much was how the authors of this book expressed disgust at the idea found in a story by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Coleridge declared a waterfall to be absolutely beautiful and even used the word sublime. And it sounds mild to say this, but in the book that had just been written on this critical approach to reading and writing, the teachers expressed their disgust that Coleridge could speak in such a way that he could state as a truth that something could be something. He said all he really can, uh, these, these authors said all that Coleridge really could tell us is how he felt about something. And Lewis, in his book, expressed his extreme trouble that the moral truth claims of these authors could be expressed to such young people. 
He was saying that these English teachers were saying that things cannot be objectively true, that all value statements only explain the emotional state of a speaker and are therefore unimportant. Lewis, writing nearly 80 years ago, was uncanny in his prediction that the subjection of truth to feelings would lead to a future where a small cabal of academic professionals could manipulate humanity on religious grounds by undermining the very basis of truth. And eventually, they would take over the role of determining which truth was an acceptable truth. Lewis points out the absurdity of this relativism and that a deeply educated thinker would never allow for such a thing. So the only way such an idea could sway minds is if it were to be planted in the seeds of the young. And especially if they were implanted in the seeds of the young when they don't realize that they are being indoctrinated. He stated it this way, it's found in the abolition of man. The very power of the authors depends on the fact that they are dealing with a boy, a boy who thinks that he is simply doing his English prep. It has no notion that ethics, theology, and politics are all at stake. It is not a theory they put into his mind, but an assumption. Was ten years hence its origin forgotten and its presence unconscious? Will condition him to take one side in a controversy which he has never recognized as a controversy at all? Do you see what he's getting at? Eighty years ago, in 1943... He's saying that the theological ideas of relativism were being introduced in such a way so that the next generation would view truth as malleable. And his uh, his, uh, foresight was uncanny because he could see that the issues at stake were issues, as you see it there, of ethics, theology, and politics. He points out that the issues of education and public policy were already invading the space of the church. And whether the church was ready or not, the foundations of of truth were being destroyed in the culture. Would you not agree with me that his statements are uncannily familiar? Have you not witnessed them today? Would you not agree that much of what he said so long ago has come to pass in Gillette, Wyoming. But wouldn't you also agree that we have a God who is bigger than our cultural moments? Amen? And the issues before our culture today are issues uh, of religion. The issues often discussed in politics today are issues of religion. But let me explain. This is a religion, unlike any religion that has come before it. It is overtly religious in its core doctrines of radical autonomy on the one hand, and yet it demands radical conformity to the demands of radical autonomy on the other. It declares to the world that it is anti-religious, and yet it operates from a system of virtue signaling and virtue shaming. It has its seminaries set up on university campuses across the country, where students learn from programs like gender studies and philosophy departments that there is no objective truth. And the only truth is, as Oprah Oprah declares it to be, you just live your truth, baby. Such deceitfulness is not just new to our day. 
In the Apostle Paul's day, there were some in Corinth who distorted and outright nullified the truth of the gospel. And he addresses that in our text this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And while the distortion then isn't necessarily what we are seeing today, today there are actually people who don't believe that there is objective truth. But he, he grabs a hold of this idea and he lifts the whole idea of the world and its truths up to the light of the gospel and tells the church what we do and how to live in our day. We've read the text He talks about this beautiful ministry he has and how he has received the mercy to accomplish this ministry. And that to accomplish that ministry, what he has done is he has renounced the hidden things of shame. I want you to note that with me. The hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or handling the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. The context of this book shows us that there had been some peddling lies. If you have your Bible with me, you can go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 17. In that text it says this, For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God. But as of sincerity, as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Now, when we talk about what he's taught, what he saw then, there were some that were just using the word of God, forgive me, using the word of God as a pretext for them to explain what they wanted people to hear so that they could lord themselves over God's heritage against the, uh, what Peter had later written in 1 Peter. And there are some that have used the gospel wrongly to try to persuade people to positions that are absolutely contrary to the word of God. And Paul was saying, we are not as so many, peddling the word of God, trying to sell it. But we are sincere as of from God, and we speak in the very sight of God. And what he is saying there is that God was witness to what he was saying, and he knew that he would stand before God. And the truth is today, God watches what I am saying. God watches what you are receiving. God sees our hearts and our minds. He understands who we are before Him and whether we are sincere or we simply study the Scripture to try to peddle it for our own gain. That brings us to our passage this morning where Paul gives us five powerful verses that shows how he refused to allow the falsehoods of his day to stand unchallenged. And I believe he delivers that to us today as well. We cannot allow the falsehoods of our culture to stand unchallenged in our day. And finally, in verse number 6, he give us, gives us possibly the most powerful mission statement in history. So what I want to do, if you have your Bible with you, I want us to unpack this text. And we'll start... In verses 1 and 2, therefore, seeing we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we do not faint. What is the ministry Paul is speaking of here? It's the ministry of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, of preaching the whole counsel of God without any veil, with no concealment of truth. 
He understood that Jesus Christ is indeed the truth. Jesus is introduced to us in the book of John chapter 1 as the true light. I love that. In Greek, it's literally tophos ton alethanon. The light, the true. He is so much the truth that the world needs. That he is the eternal light calling people to safety. And we see here that God gave him the ministry of holding up the light of the gospel. Jesus Christ himself. And because he was holding up the gospel, he refused to lose heart. Though the world sometimes seems to line up against us, just as they lined up against him, he found strength, as you can see in the text, in the mercy of God. That's why he refused to lose heart. But notice in verse 2. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And Paul right here in this text points out that there are false uh, teachers who had come into the Corinthian church who were tricky, who were deceitful. The word handling there in the Greek is the word doluo. It means literally not only to deceive, but to falsify evidence by which they can deceive another. Does that sound familiar? Their methods were the same as always. The ones that have always been used by the forces of evil. Namely, shameful enticements to sin, crafty juggling of truth, And the use of crafty arguments. But he says this in verse 3, But if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them who are lost. If the gospel, he's saying, is veiled or hidden to some, it isn't God's fault. Paul doesn't want it to be his fault either. As we see in Romans chapter 1, God declares and shines His glory throughout creation. And if creation sings His praises, so ought we. And Paul is saying that very thing here. Yet he writes, as he writes these words, he has to point out that there are some that are deceitful. And there are some that simply seem to be unable to receive the truth. Read this with me in Verse number four, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And here he comes to the crux of his message in this text. Paul steps into the great reason why many people cannot see today. Why, why so many cannot see the truth, and as a result, they tear the world apart. It's because the God of this age has blinded them. Let me step away from my notes for just a second. Let me ask you a question. Is there resistance even now in your spirit to the recognition that there is truth in the world? Do you fight against the Word of God? And say, well, that truth is your truth. My contention today, and I say this lovingly as your brother, is that the God of this age has crept in and blinded you to the fact that there is indeed noble truth. 
And that truth is truth. It is there and it's easy to apprehend if you will simply lift your eyes up and see our Messiah. But the God of this world has blinded the minds of so many. John 8.44 tells us that Satan is the father of lies. And see it here, he targets, the Bible tells us, the mind whose minds the God of this age has blinded. And Satan doesn't mind what, what lie he might use. Any old lie will do. He may use the lie of the world that the world popped out of nowhere, of its own accord. And so you don't have to believe in a God. He may use the ideas of Freud, that you can try to psychoanalyze yourself out of heart sickness. He may use what Paul described to Timothy as oppositions of science falsely so-called. And what is meant there is that there are ideas that change over with every generation. But what thing they hold in common is that they are simply there to cast doubt on the truth of God's Word. Satan uses all sorts of things to blind the eyes of our neighbors to the truth of God's Word. And we see it more and more today than ever before. The very distortion of reality. Earlier this year, I was reading a book, and it was a nerd moment for me, so please forgive me. I'm going to take you down a nerd path. I was reading about the formation of the Oxford English Dictionary. I know, it sounds inspiring, doesn't it? But it was extraordinary. There was a man who people didn't know what was wrong with him. He had actually committed murder, but he was placed in an insane asylum. He was from America, but he was locked up the remainder of his life in an insane asylum in England. And this man, though, was extremely brilliant. And what he was able to do, to do is define words very well. And he would go backwards in English history and look at every occasion in which a word was studied out and explained by someone like Shakespeare or Chaucer, or you just move forward through time. It was an extraordinary book. But there was something written later on. At the time, they didn't know how to diagnose this man. He later was diagnosed with something called schizophrenia. But as late as 1984, there was a paper that was presented on the case of a man who was convinced that he was born with a phantom second head. And he he grew so angry with his perceived condition that one day he went out and purchased a revolver and tried to blow his second head off. Obviously, he nearly killed himself because, like you and me, he was born with one head on his shoulders. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia and got some help with his distortion of reality. The same book released this as well. You may have heard of bulimia, a situation where people who are either thin or of normal weight essentially starve themselves because they think they are fat. Earlier this year, I was speaking to a lady who is currently running for Congress, wonderful lady, and she mentioned a case of bulimia that she had seen in the daughter of one of her very dear friends. She said at one point, you could actually take your hand and you could touch your finger and your thumb around the bicep of this young lady just before she died. We fight to help people see when they are battling some sort of dysphoric condition. 
We fight hard to try to give them the help they need. And yet today, a real condi- condition exists called gender dysphoria, where a very rare group of usually younger people are confused about their sexuality. In those real cases, and it, which are very rare, less than 0.03% of the human population, five out of six of them have it fully figured out by the time they are in their early teens and no longer live with a distorted situation, uh, a case of reality. Indeed, the word dysphoria itself means an emotional state characterized by anxiety, depression, or unease. And yet you and I live in a society today where some believe that if a young person comes with this particular dysphoria for counseling, that the counselor must lead them to believe that the state of horrible confusion they find themselves in is how they are supposed to feel for the rest of their lives. The God of this age, the sexual revolution, demanding radical conformity to demands of radical autonomy, tries to blind the minds of men with such lies. And the question for us then, as the church, standing as God placed us some 2,000 years ago, upon the truth of His Word, the question for us today is what do we do? We'll look at verse 5. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your servant for Jesus' sake. Read verse 6. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What do we do? We preach the truth. We preach Christ. We shine His light into the darkness. We find those who are in a dysphoric condition and share with them that God loves them so much He created them in His own image. And if they will understand how God created them and God knows exactly where they are, that they can find healing and they can find peace. Everyone here has to recognize that the world attempts To silence your Christian walk. But the world needs your Christian walk now more than ever. They need to see how a church acts and looks and feels. How we reach into lives and love people even as they are unlovely. Let me stop for a second and just say, if you haven't actually engaged with someone who is a sinner, that this week you need to try a little bit differently. Find someone that is lost and confused and love on them in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what our world needs. Our world needs the church to be more churchy. Our world needs Christians to be more Christian-y. We need to look like Christ and smell like Christ and act like Christ. I want you to note for just a second, I'm way off my notes, listen here. When Jesus Christ came, He didn't come to preach to the Pharisees. He preached at them, sure. But he literally, the Bible says, that he hung out with tax collectors and sinners. Years ago in seminary, I heard a man say this, a shepherd smells like sheep. And a real man of God will work with people who are not necessarily people who are fully cleaned up, who have their act together. 
He gets right in there with the sheep. He gets right in there and loves on them and, and, and helps them and sometimes says things that in love confronts the things that are destroying a person's life. I believe fully in the statement that every minister is called to be, every member is called to be a minister and every saint a servant. Everyone in this room has the duty to shine the light of the gospel of Christ to the world around you. But we as the American church have not done this well. There have been four different ways, as I analyze this, that the church has responded to the cultural tide constantly pushing against the church. The first is there were some that actually wound up being overwhelmed by the cultural tide. In a movement known as modernism within the church, there were people that began to actually deny that Jesus Christ was the Lord God. There was one professor many years ago, sadly, he was a Baptist professor, he made this statement that Jesus Christ was nothing more than the son of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed German soldier who knocked up Mary one time in Judea. That is raw, blatant heresy. And one cannot claim to be a Christian if you teach such a thing. But that was taught in a Bible seminary years ago in the 1920s. And as modernism grew in the American church, the same forces that argued against the true doctrines of the faith argued for a new godless social order. For instance, I'm going to get very direct here. Within the Methodist movement, there was a liberal teacher by the name of Professor Borden Parker Bone in the 1970s. And this was a man that later, a famed philosopher who was extremely uh, atheistic, William James, he observed this. See how the ancient spirit of Methodism evaporates under the wonderfully able rationalistic books of a professor like Professor Bone. When the atheists are praising false ministers of the gospel, something has gone terribly wrong. Methodism adopted, adopted its social creed in 1908. It was championed by Harry Ward, who later enthused in 1920. It is doubtful if any period of human history, unless it was that immediately preceding the birth of Jesus, has known such a universal expectancy of the dawn of a new age. Ward was echoed in 1924 by eventual Bishop Harris Franklin Rawl, who wrote, we are coming to see more clearly each day that the kingdom of God means not, not simply new individuals, but a new world and a new socialist order. This group, when it was confronted by the cultural tide, wound up being overwhelmed by the tide. But there was another group that crept up in that day as well. They became known as fundamentalists. They responded to the heresy of modernism by essentially fighting as hard as they could. And, but with the Scopes Monkey trial and the repeal of Prohibition and the Great Depression, and uh, the fundamentalists actually became more known for their raw militancy than their, for their doctrinal depth. Long gone were the great arguments that called people to the truth, and instead what happened is after one devastating attack from the cultural tide after another, they wound up retreating 
from public policy altogether. The third response is seen even today, but it goes way back in history. Over the past 60 years, we have looked looked to great men of the past like Robert Taft in the 1940s. Some looked at Richard Nixon and John Kennedy and Jerry Falwell and Reagan, Gingrich, Bush, Trump, and many others. And what happened is the third response is then that there have been some within the church that have looked for a new cultural Messiah to help people surmount the tide and get over it. Let me say, most of those men I've just mentioned are men I admire and respect very much. But we cannot place our duty on one man alone and expect that something good is supposed to happen. We have to be men and women of God, every one of us, in the church today. And as a result of that, the fourth response, which I believe to be the biblical response, is this. You and I have been called to be a lighthouse above the tides, calling people toward the truth of God's, God's Word. You and I have been called to be the lighthouse of the truth. That's what Paul says. This light, this hope, this treasure, God says in verse number 6, is housed in earthen vessels. That earthen vessel is you. You literally, if you are a born-again child of God, hold the truth in your soul, in your heart. It ought to motivate, it ought to animate, it ought to make you who you are as a brother or a sister in Christ. You are called to be a lighthouse of the truth. And what this fallen fallen world needs is what you and I are supposed to be giving to them. We're not to bow. We're not to hide. We're not to try to find someone else to do our work for us. We are every one of us. To carry the light of God's Word in our homes, in our churches, in front of our school boards, in our town halls, in Cheyenne, in Washington, around the world. And while pop psychology may insist that you are who you are based on your feelings rather than objective facts, our nation as it begins to buckle under the question of which truth to follow, or whether there is even knowable truth at all, it is into that intersection that God calls the Christian. Into that junction of truth and culture. You and I, God's bride, the church, are called to stand tall and say waterfalls can be sublime. God created them. Truth is knowable because he established it before the foundation of the earth. And mankind cannot be abolished in a sea of made-up feelings in spite of what many schools teach today. Friends, you and I hold the truth. And we cannot fail in our day to stand for truth. It is our call. We have this ministry to speak the whole counsel of God We do not lose heart. While the God of this age may have blinded many, God, who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, has shown it into our hearts. And He places this beautiful treasure into earthen vessels.
His glorious gospel so that we can carry it throughout the world. My challenge for you today is, ladies and gentlemen, we must do our job. We stand on the shoulders of some 2,000 years of great Christians throughout the past. And we cannot drop our link in the chain of history as they have all held their link so faithfully. We have to pass on to the next generation what we receive from them. And it's important we understand what our duty is and go live it. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I am so grateful for the power of Paul and his teaching. But Lord, the truth that he explained here to the Corinthian church abides to the church in Gillette today and in Cheyenne and in every city and village and hamlet across Wyoming. So Father, Lord, I pray that your word would be powerful. But that your people living according to the word of God would indeed be powerful as well. Give us wisdom, Lord, through your Holy Spirit to live out our faith, to speak truth in love, to not beat people into submission, but to lovingly state truth so that the world can see what it looks like. Oh God, help us to be the church. We love you and praise you and pray this in your name. Amen.